Jamie Felcha. Welcome to Crown Bihar Short Stories of Poetry for September 29, 2023. My name is Terrence O'Donnell. I'm here with some more good stories of poetry for everyone this week. This What's Week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com. It is also available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, at least for now, and Deezer. The show is free to subscribe to for now on these mobile apps with a donations tab on the RSS.com webpage where this show is hosted. All to support the show. Much like passing a hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. So a little about me. I'm a senior citizen of Irish descent and self-professed Sean Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting together underneath the village oak tree, the Crown Biha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life. While here together, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found in medium.com, including some of my own stories on occasion. Usually only when I don't have enough to go around, somebody backed out or something. Now, some of these stories are scary. Some of them are very thoughtful, soul-searching, romantic. Other ones are just fun. Um, can, can be a bit comedic at times. So, in order to read the accompanying newsletters in Medium.com or Substack.com, you'll need to either sign up for a subscription in Medium, or I offer the newsletter free for the first month in Substack, then they get paywalled afterwards. If you want to read any of the newsletters and listen to the podcast without any obligations, you can also find everything in the blog section of my website at www.cronbeha.com. You can find all the older shows until Samhain, which is November 1st, for those who don't know. I will be starting a new season after that, and I'm going to archive most of the other shows that I recorded before August 1st. So my goal is to entertain you with stories of poetry from around the world and try to pick out stories and poems that will hopefully stay with you for a wee bit after we've parted for the day, leave you wanting more. So let's go to the very first story I have for you. It's actually a poem. Uh, another one that I picked out from Mariana Bosarova from Bul Bulgaria. It's entitled Inverted Skyline. The life is upside down. I don't want to wait. This life is like an inverted skyline. I dare to look up, even if I would be punished for being different. It is a curse to have your own point of view. Is it damnation to reject humiliation and lies? Hypocrisy is so heavy, so hard to swallow the ignominies. I tend to cut the root of those little intrigues spreading around like poison. Where to hide my wings? Do they bother you? I am not the solution to that wrong life theorem you're invented. And my inverted skyline is like a distorting mirror, isn't it? No boundaries in it. No tall walls to stop me. I don't want to follow anybody's pattern. I do not like to bend my head. I don't make a step back. But so maybe sometimes I do regret about that. But I prefer to follow my different path. And that's her poem. Kind of makes you think a little bit. Uh, especially if you're, you know, maybe a little bit different or something. But either way. So the next one is a story. It's a scary story. It's entitled A Knock at the Door by Aria Wraith. Now that, I don't know if that's her real name, but it doesn't really matter. Her name is Aria Wraith for as far as we're concerned. A Knock at the Door 
Don't open the door at night. Not for anyone. Not even me. Published in Horror House. Ma told me never to open the door at night. Not for anyone. Not even her. After dark, all bets are off, she'd say. You don't know who's real and who's not. For a long time, I didn't get what she meant by that. I mean, if somebody's knocking on the door, they got to be real. Unless there were a whole lot of fake people going door to door that I didn't know about. Whenever I asked what she meant, she'd always change the subject. All the same, the door stayed nice and shut after dark. I was 14 when I finally learned what she was talking about. I was just about ready to go to bed when I heard someone gently knocking on the door. When Ma had warned me about things lurking outside and people that weren't real, I imagined something spidery made of shadows. Something with a voice like bone grinding on bone. Not this. This had to be just a regular person. Hello? Is anyone there? Hello? Sound like a normal person to me. Kind of upset and scared, like they needed help. It'd be downright cruel to ignore them. Especially with how cold it was outside. I was halfway to the door when I heard Ma's voice behind me. Annalise, don't you dare answer that. You remember what I said? Of course I did. But it seemed like whoever was outside was in some kind of trouble, and I said so. Maybe they'd gotten lost, or their car broke down all the way out here in the middle of nowhere. Besides, I added, they don't sound like a monster or nothing. Maybe not, but that don't prove nothing. No one's going to open up for something that sounds like evil, now will they? I don't know if this was because I was taking too long or because they could hear the both of us, but the knocking got louder. More insistent. Desperate, now that I think about it. Whoever it was wanted to come in, and they seemed damn well ready to break down on our door to do it. I actually started to get a little afraid. Not Ma, though. She didn't flinch. She walked over to the door, but didn't touch it. You're not coming in, she said. There was a frustrated cry and a flurry of blows that shook the door frame, but that was all. Whoever or whatever, it was gone. That morning, Ma called me outside. Laying dead in the snow was a deer, its throat torn open as if by a wild beast. Sad, but nothing too out of the ordinary. There's wolves around here, wild cats too, and I know they gotta eat, but I couldn't help but feel bad for the poor thing. Of course, that wasn't why she brought me out there. Never mind how bad you feel for it. Take a closer look and tell me what's wrong here. Took me a moment, but I realized what Mom was on about. Whatever killed the deer didn't eat it. The only wound was the hole in the throat, and nothing else. No way some wolves would have left that a, a fine meal like that untouched. Stranger yet, though, was there wasn't a drop of blood to be seen. Not on the carcass, not in the snow, not anywhere. In fact, all the snow around the thing had been scraped up. Seeing that, I finally caught on. She nodded. If you'd open up, that would have been you. That thing that got the deer, it would have taken every last drop of blood you had. No guilt, no remorse, Ma said. Those things ain't living. That's what I mean when I say they ain't real. What causes things like that, Mama? What makes them come to be? She shrugged. Who knows? There's a lot of stories. Living a bad life, taking your own, or dying a tra sudden tragic death are the ones I've always heard. Could be one, could be the other, could be any of the three. Doesn't really matter. All that matters is that you know they're dangerous. Ma insisted that we burn the carcass and scatter the ashes after. Can't take any chances, not in this place. Last thing we need some beast that got itself cursed by eating that prowling around, she'd said. Little did I know, I'd only have five more years with my mother. 
One morning, I came downstairs to find her sprawled out on the floor, not moving. I shook her and screamed, but still she didn't wake. Nothing the doctor could do either when he got there. Later, he told me that something in her brain had burst. Now that I think about it, she'd been complaining about terrible headaches for a while before then and saying sometimes her sight went blurry. I told her to go get that checked, but Mom was too proud, too stubborn to ever go to the doctor. She'd say it was nothing a cup of tea and some rest wouldn't cure. Suffice to say, it wasn't. I cried like a baby. My mother was dead and gone, and I was all alone in the world. Our house wasn't all that big, but it felt huge and empty without her in it. No more Ma cooking in the kitchen or chiding me for oversleeping. No more stories, no more laughter, no more anything. All there was was quiet. Two weeks after my mother was buried, there was a knock at the door. Late at night, just as I was getting ready to go to bed. Annie, Annie, it's Mama. I'm home. I wanted to think it was a cruel joke, that someone had heard of my misfortune was laughing at my expense, but I knew better. Standing on my tippy toes, I looked out the little window on the door. There she was, still in the dress I buried her in, the blue one she always loved, and only wore on rare occasions we had somewhere to go. It was torn, dirty, faded, streaked with mud and filth, like she'd been wandering around the woods for days. Her hair was matted with dirts and leaves, and unkempt hanging over her face. She saw me and she smiled. Annie, it's Mama. Open the door. I wanted to. Lord knows how much I wanted to. Every fiber in my body just wanted to fling that door wide open and run into her arms for a hug. But I knew it would be the last thing I'd ever do. Instead, I grabbed the big knife from the kitchen and sat with my back against the door. Taking a deep breath to keep my voice from trembling, I answered, Go away, Mama. Go away. You're not coming in. Ma always kept a big string of garlic in the kitchen, saying it came in handy for both cooking and warded off, warding off evil. She used to joke that I must have had a bit of the devil in me, since I never liked how garlicky her cooking was. A little bit's fine, but Ma was wont to put a whole head of it in the stew, and I couldn't taste much else. Right then, I wished I'd share her taste for the stuff. Annalise, open the door. Ma's tone changed to the same one it did whenever I was in trouble. Now! She began to scratch at the door like old Huey used to do whenever he wanted to come in. Even the dog knew there was no good in being out after dark around here. The longer it went on, the worse it got. And maybe it was just a trick of my imagination, but I thought I could feel her nails working their way through the old wood with each scratch. I thought about one of the old stories she hadn't told me, that those things hungered for blood, and they gladly feed on anything they could, but their first victims were always loved ones friends, family, anyone who was close to them in life. For Ma, there was only me. By sunrise, she would be gone. But I didn't know if I could hold out that long. Even if I did, she would come back the next night and the next and the next after that, and she wasn't going to stop until she got me. I had no choice. I had to open the door. What waited for me outside looked like my mother when the door was shut, but once, not once it opened. Before me stood something with rotten gray skin and milky, worm-eaten eyes. Its mouth opened up way bigger than anyone's ought to do, and it was filled with a whole lot of sharp teeth. A bloated, purple-black tongue lolled out, reminding me of nothing so much as a giant slug, stuck to high heaven, too, reminding me of the time Huey killed a rat and left half of it behind the couch. It took all I had not to throw up. One bony hand clamped around my wrist and dragged me out of the house. The stench of decay rose up all around me as she pulled me close, all I could think of was that deer laying dead in the snow all those years ago, and how that would be me if I didn't do something. 
Begging and pleading probably wouldn't do me any good, and she was monstrously strong. There was no way I'd be able to break free of her grip. As it was, I felt like she was crushing my wrist. All I had was my knife, and it would have to do. Sorry, Mama. Closing my eyes, I plunged it into her heart, sunk it all the way down to the handle. She shrieked and clawed at me, tearing up my face and my arms. Good thing I had my eyes closed, or else I'm sure she would have torn them right out of my head. It was only a few seconds, but it felt like an hour before she finally gurgled, vomited something that felt horrible, smelled worse all over me, and fell backwards. When I finally, finally stopped sobbing and opened my eyes again, squinting through the blood and the tears, there was no monster laying there dead on the ground, no horrible, rotten thing, just moth. I burned her corpse, just like we did with the deer years earlier, said a prayer to set her soul to rest, and scared her ashes to the winds. I burned everything I was wearing that night, too, buried the knife far from the house. Ma never told me to do anything of the sort, but I didn't want to look at or touch it ever again. There's more of those things out there prowling in the darkness and hunting for blood. I know there are. They'll do whatever they can to lure you out, and if they do, you're dead. Ignore their pleas. Ignore their knocking. Ignore the fact that they might look like someone you love. Don't open the door at night. Not for anyone. Not even me. That's a pretty scary story. The next one I have is kind of scary a little bit. Philip Augley. Paul looked up and started to climb. The 1,800-foot sandstone column rising out of the desert was as close to perfection as you could wish for, for a climber at least. For anyone else, it was just another great Instagram moment. Luckily, no one came here, too far off the beaten track. Even Paul had to leave his pickup two hours away and walk, but it guaranteed him the solitude he craved. He had slept the night at the base of the stack, as it was known locally, making a fire, cooking sausages, and eating them with bread, before waking the next morning to make the ascent. It wasn't the hardest climb he had ever done. Some climbs had taken him days, but it was technically challenging, plus the view at the top was stunning. The first 500 feet was the trickiest part. The sandstone here was loose and had crumbled in places, and it was hard to find a crevice to put in a climber's cam to secure himself. It was for this reason that the stack wasn't a popular climb. Most locals call it a death trap and thought Paul was nuts. The whole thing is going to collapse, his climbing mates often told him. What did they know? They just wanted to do the glory climbs so they could post them on Instagram. Paul wasn't into that. He climbed because he loved the challenge and the risk. The enchantment of being where few people ever went. At 500 feet, the rock became firmer and easier to climb and he soon made it up to a ledge halfway up. He'd been climbing for about three hours, so he sat on the ledge, no more than a foot wide, to eat cake and drink some water. After leaving the ledge, he'd made good progress up to the 1,500-foot mark. Then it got tricky again. Most sandstone columns tapered inwards towards the top. This didn't. For some strange geological reason, the stack increased in width towards the top, meaning that to get to the summit, you had to climb up an overhang, which, after nearly 1,500 feet of climbing, was not easy. Luckily, Paul knew a section where there had been a split in the rock, and over the millennia it had been weathered to create a small gully so that the climber could almost walk to the top, like walking up a staircase. That was simplifying it somewhat, but one still had to climb. But it meant he didn't have to navigate the treacherous top section. After negotiating the staircase and several 
Seven hours after he started, Paul stood on the badminton court-sized summit of the stack. It had probably taken him longer than normal, but why the rush? Up here, time stood still as it had done forever. All around him were the remains of millions of years of erosion attrition. Escarpments, mountains, boulders, and stacks littered the desert floor, all glimmering in the late October sun. Even though it was only five o'clock, the sun would be setting in an hour. So after some cold sausage and bread, he got into his sleeping bag and gazed skyward. This is why he came here, to gaze at the stars. To not think he was on a stack. To not think he was in the desert. To not think of anything. He wasn't sure what woke him first, the noise or the vibration. Either way, he didn't expect to be alive for much longer. He had heard the sound of collapsing rock many times, but luckily always from afar. This was right below him. The stack was collapsing. There wasn't even any point in wriggling free of his sleeping bag. Soon he would be dead. Any second now, he would fall into the abyss with all the other rock and be pummeled into dust. But it never came. The rumbling stopped, and Paul lay there waiting. He didn't know how long he lay there for, maybe an hour, maybe longer. But by the time he dared move, the sun was rising. So ever so gently, he inched out of his sleeping bag to start thumping like it had never beat before. Barely two feet from where he had slept, the entire half of the column had gone, leaving him perched on the other half like an eagle. Except an eagle could fly away. Paul was stuck. The side of the column on which he had ascended had collapsed, taking with it all his equipment. Like all climbers, he had intended to abseil down using a second rope and collect his cans, screws, and carabiners on the way down. But everything had gone. Even his climbing shoes that he had taken off the night before now lay on the desert floor. Paul didn't have much time to think about what to do. The rest of the stack would soon collapse. And even if it didn't, he would soon die of thirst. He had no choice but to free climb down the 1,800-foot stack backwards. And as any climber knows, climbing down is harder than climbing up. It feels unnatural and wrong. You can't see your footholds as easily, and you can't tell if they're loose or not. Paul looked at the rising sun and realized it might be his last. This was going to be hard, very hard. He would need every ounce of his experience, and he needed some luck, lots of luck. But if he made it to the ledge halfway up, that would be a start. That was his goal. With the staircase now on the desert floor, he had to negotiate the dangerous top section. So without peering over, he slung his body over the lip of the overhang and niched his way down. He had free climb many times before, but nothing like this. This was the real deal. One slip and he was dead. But he just had to remember who he was, and he was a damn good climber. So don't panic. Just pretend it was another climb. It took him an hour to navigate the overhang, but when he got past it, he felt better. That was the hardest part, he told himself. You can do it. So he started climbing down, paying maximum attention to what he was doing. He thought of nothing else. Every neuron in his brain was fixed on the rock. He was no more than a brain attached to two thin arms and legs. This was all that was required of him to survive. Everything else was irrelevant. If his mind drifted off for a second, he was dead. If he started thinking of life beyond the rock face, he was dead. Any mistake, and he was dead. It was as simple as that. Five hours later, he reached the ledge. He was exhausted. He just wanted to curl up on the ledge and sleep, but he couldn't. He had to get down. He had done well so far, and the stack was still standing. He had a chance. So he ached all over, hungry, thirsty, and tired. Paul eased himself over the edge of the ledge. 
He was 500 feet from the bottom when he heard a rumble and tears came to his eyes. He braced himself against the rock face and wanted to scream, but he didn't have the energy, so he waited for the end. The end he had avoided since daybreak, but now it had finally caught up with him. He closed his eyes. Then the rumbling stopped. Paul didn't move. He clung there for a long time until he was convinced himself that it was safe. He would never climb again, he promised himself if he made it. He started again, but quicker than before. His concentration was breaking. He just wanted to get down. He was starting to panic. That was when he fell. A foothold broke as he carelessly jumped into it rather than gently placed his foot into it. His legs gave way, and it was only due to the raw power in his sinewy fingers that he managed to hang on with one hand and pull himself back to the wall. Concentrate, Paul, he said. Concentrate. He looked down, and he had about 200 feet to go. He could do this. 100 feet. 50 feet. 30 feet. He was nearly there, but he could still die. People died falling out of windows every day. 20 feet. 10 feet. He could still break a leg. With no food or water, he would be dead by morning. 5 feet. The height of a gate. 2 feet. Paul hit solid ground and collapsed onto the floor, utterly exhausted. Beyond exhaustion. He had done it, but he had to get away. Just imagine, after all that, to be crushed under the falling stack. He got up and stumbled along the path and walked slowly towards his pickup. He wanted to sleep, but he needed water. If he stayed out here in the desert, he would die. It was dark when he arrived at his pickup. For a minute, he thought his keys were in the bag that had cascaded down into the abyss. But he had learned from experience never to take his car keys on a climb. The unexpected can always happen. So he found the nearby bush he had put them under and drove home. The stack never collapsed. Even today, it's still there, its pinnacle soaring into the sky like never before. People go and see it, and it's become a bit of a tourist attraction, even on Instagram. No one climbs it anymore, though. Death trap, the geologist said, could have collapsed at any minute. Not that Paul cared. Like many climbers who vowed they would never climb again after a bad day, Paul was out climbing two weeks later. It was his life. What was he going to do? Watch TV? Scroll through Instagram? Sometimes he drove out to the stack, his climbing gear and his pickup, wondering if he should just try it one more time, for old time's sake. But he never did. The stack had tried to shake him off once before, and it would surely try again. Let it be. Leave it in peace. Leave it as nature intended, untouched. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if this is a true story or not. It may very well be, because it sounds like it could be. Um, but then it might be completely fiction. Uh, I'll let you decide. Next, I have a poem from my friend Mitch. It's called The Revolution Inside of Me. There's a revolution inside of me, growing. It's so hard to see. It's not a thing I can hold on to, nothing real. It's what's missing from everything. It's a feeling. It's what's left when they cut the creaking pines in the lot behind to build a nice three-bedroom. Who would mind? The trees did. Maybe I did, too. It's suddenly realizing the sharp red flutter of the cardinals is gone. The bees are missing too. They used to love the sunflowers I planted just for them. Only their echoes are left. They used to buzz for hours in the yard. Now the flowers just bow their heads. My new neighbor spread a truckload of gravel, hard and white, on black lawn cloth. They hoped that might kill the grass back there, after they cut everything down. It worked. It's none of my business. I shouldn't care, but I do. Death is everywhere. There's a revolution growing inside of me, made up of things I no longer can see. It breaks my heart, 
and I longed for an earth I still remember fading in my memories. And to be honest with you, that applies to pretty much everywhere here in North America. They're building up so much everywhere and taking up all the nature, um, and it's all disappearing in front of us. Now I've got a story from H.R. Parker. In my eyes, there are stars. She typically writes science fiction stories. So this is just a short one here, um, but I thought it pretty interesting. And she, she writes a lot more, so you'll be hearing more from her here going down the road. The night the stars fell, they fell into my eyes. Stardust rained down and burrowed itself under my skin, crawled into my mouth and sat on my throat, waiting. Wherever I went, the stars followed, traveling the highways of my veins and vessels, hiding behind curtain lashes. When I saw you there, in the darkness, you absorbed light, a black hole. You too were waiting. When our eyes collided, you pulled the stars from my throat and devoured them, but you never took the light from my eyes. You need that light to see in the darkness, you said. Your voice a drifting galaxy. Your lips still sparkle from their star meal. And there you sit still, raining in your darkness, my light within you. You feel me within you. I see you always. It's, again, it's a very short poem, which I thought was very good. As I said, you'll be you'll be hearing me read more of her stuff going down the road. I find her very good. Now, my last story is from Nevena Paskaleva. It's called We Found Each Other. Write, if I cut my hair, we'll look like twins. If I cut my hair, we'll look like twins. They won't be able to tell the man from the woman, she smiled, wrapping her arms around his chest. I don't want you to cut your hair. Let me grow mine long, he replied. You and long hair? Spending three hours in the bathroom? Waiting for all those hair masks to kick in? Don't worry, babe. I won't treat it like a woman's. Got it. You'll be the hippie twin. Her peal of laughter hit the silver surface of the big mirror, and it broke into a thousand pieces. Each of the pieces reflected two completely identical faces. She had auburn curls that fell to her waist, while his curls, though the same texture and color, barely reached his brow. Both had hazel-shaped dark blue eyes and slender nose and large sensual mouths. They even shared a dimple on their square chins. The identical faces beamed as they hugged each other. They hugged all the time. Outside, their bodies moved as one, locked in a tight embrace, often drawing curious looks. A month ago, an elderly woman caught them kissing on a park bench and began crossing herself. What a shame, a brother and sister. Can you believe it? I never thought I'd see the day. Doesn't that piss you off, she asked? What, he queried, that people may stake us for siblings? I could care less about what people say, he replied. What matters is that we found each other, right? When we have a child, she murmured while looking in the mirror, we won't have to wonder who they take after. He reached for his T-shirt and pulled it on. Well, he scratched his chin. There's the thing with personalities. Is that so, she laughed. You're a jerk and I'm a bitch. We'll keep an eye on whose choice of words they use when they pick on people. Her laughter engulfed his and, and the mixed sound hit the mirror again. The broken pieces seemed to disintegrate into even smaller bits. They formed a cloud of gray dust that darkened the room and hid her reflections from view. Five months later, he walked out on her. He was indeed a jerk. He left her for a petite blonde from the bar, the one that was different. And as I said, that's my last story. That's a pretty interesting one. Um, it's not necessarily scary, 
or romantic and things like that. It's life and in a lot of ways. So I hope you enjoyed the show this week. As I said, I try to offer you a, a different variety of stories and poetry and hopefully something that touches your heart. So don't forget to read the newsletter for the show, available on Medium Substack in the blog section of my website, Crombie Hop. My parting song for this week is titled She Moved Through the Fair by James Galway and the Chieftains. Until next time, slotcha. I'd like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and you'll return again for another episode of Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. Search for Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shauna Key, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.